Welcome to Sichot Kashot, Difficult Conversations. I'm your host, Maddie Anderson. Today, I'm joined by my classmate, friend, and former roommate, Stephanie Green. Uh, Stephanie's a soon-to-be ordained cantor and the senior Jewish educator at Hillel Jewish University Center of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In this episode, we'll discuss the rise of anti-Semitism and the way it affects Jewish students on college campuses. Before we get into it, Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the Hillel world? Hi, Maddie. So happy to, to be here. Thank you for asking me to do this. I'm from Chicago. It's a little bit of a lie because I'm like actually from New Jersey, as you know, but <laughs> my, my family moved to Chicago uh, when I began high school and I ended up spending most of my 20s in Chicago as well. So I feel like a true Chicagoan. I consider my home congregation, North Shore Congregation Israel in Glencoe, Illinois, where I will actually also be getting married this June, which is very exciting. Woo woo, mazel tov. Sure, thank you. So yeah, I was, was raised in Reformed congregations. I took a kind of wandering path through my 20s. I pursued a career in music, in opera and vocal performance, and I taught voice for many years. I'm also trained and I've worked as a choral conductor. I worked in digital marketing for two years for a health and wellness startup. And then I had a moment in 2016, God spoke to me. You're supposed to be a cantor. It's what makes your life make sense and it's how you're going to change the world. And one thing led to another. I cram learned some Hebrew, prepared my application for HUC and audition and then we were moving to Israel in June 2017, where we were roommates. And what a wild time. Yeah, it was similar for me, such a quick experience jumping into HUC. Like, I think I passed my Hebrew test three weeks before we moved to Jerusalem. So lots of good memories and entertaining memories. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> and how'd you end up at Hillel? So I'm, this is kind of, a, I. I never saw myself necessarily working in a Hillel. If you asked me when I started cantorial school where I thought I would be, it wouldn't have been at Hillel. I have a, a story, a pandemic uh, sort of beshared <laughs> story that unfolded in, in the last two years that we've been living through these strange COVID times. Throughout HUCI, I had internships at, cantorial internships at synagogues. And in December 2019, I met my now fiance on JSwipe in New York City, and we started dating. And it was just a couple months. He out of nowhere got a job in Pittsburgh, and you know it was an opportunity. He, I remember he called me one day. I was like, I need to take this job. It's a great opportunity. Sorry, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, I really like this guy. And at the time, I was interviewing for. Uh, cantorial internships. And I remember I told my mom I was dating someone, which I never did. It, that would always be, <laughs> I stopped doing that. And she said, oh, well, are there any cantorial internships in Pittsburgh? As we were talking, literally the email came through, the notification, ding, 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 there's a congregation in Pittsburgh looking for a cantorial intern. One thing led to another with the pandemic, HUC went remote. My now fiance, Barry and I were a FaceTiming for months of long distance early on in the pandemic, love in the time of COVID story. Uh, I was able to move here to work at the synagogue and, and that was just a one year contract. But then I remember talking with Barry back in around April or May. And I said, you know, some of your best friends, 
you know, he, he went to Pitt here in Pittsburgh for his master's and he was involved with grad student programming at Hillel and he met most of his best friends through Hillel, through a program mm. called Rayburg. And I remember saying to him one day, I was like, I really don't know anything about the Hillel here. That's strange. And so I Googled it and I saw they were hiring for the senior Jewish educator role, which is the, the clergy role in Hillel International. And so I used my connection because Barry was, was close with the executive director. So he connected us and uh, about five interviews later, uh, I got the job. And I'm, oh. I'm so happy working at Hillel. It, it's, I never, as a cantor, I, I was told recently that I'm, the first by the director of placement for the ACC that I'm the first ACC cantor to be working in Hillel, which is really exciting for them. And I'm, I'm really excited about what I'm, I'm bringing to the role and to Hillel International in, in other ways. So it's been great. That's so cool. I'm so excited for you that you have the opportunity and I'm so thrilled for you that you are like not going through job placement like the rest of us in our final semester at HUC. I mean, really what, what a great opportunity for your career and a great transition from grad school and working to just working. Can't <laughs> wait. Well, thank you so much for joining. I'm just so grateful to be able to have these conversations and to have them with friends and friends who are, who are also educated in these areas. Before we get into this episode, it is important for listeners to know that we recorded on the morning of January 15th, 2022. This was the same morning that a rabbi and members of congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas were taken hostage. Stephanie and I were unaware of the situation until after we finished recording. We spent the rest of the day in contact, praying for their safe release. We are grateful that they were not physically harmed in this anti-Semitic attack. That being said, anti-Semitic incidents and attacks remain at an all-time high in United States history, and our discussion remains relevant. So let's jump in. For those who are studying along or want to take this conversation into their own space, you can find the text sheet and guidelines for respectful conversations on my website at rabbimaddie.com. The text for this episode includes stories from students about anti-Semitism that they faced on college campuses across the United States. You'll hear some statistics from the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, their mission is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment for all. And then finally, Stephanie and I are going to talk a little bit about the impacts of the October 2018 attack on the Tree of Life or Lusimcha congregation in Pittsburgh. And we'll talk a little bit about how it impacted us as second year students when that happened and also about how it's impacted the community that Stephanie is now working in. So the first story I want to share isn't on the text sheet. It was just published yesterday, which as of this recording was January 14th, 2022. Uh, the story details Sasha Westrick's experience as an 18-year-old college freshman at Temple University. Uh, so she's matched with a roommate who first makes remarks about her getting dressed up on Shabbat 
and some remarks about the fact that she believes in God, which is weird to me because I think a lot of people believe in God, you know, Christians believe in God. So, so I was surprised to see that that's something that a student is like bothering her about, but it seemed connected to her getting dressed up for Shabbat and participating every week. And then the roommate also asked her for money and said she thought the Jewish people had a lot of it, which we know is a common anti-Semitic trope and a total misconception of our community. Certainly there are rich Jews in the world, as there are every other religion (laughs) and ethnicity. So that was bad, Um, but she didn't speak up until her roommate took it a step further. She took a picture of her and then typed the words across the picture, I hate Jews, and texted it to her. So a picture of Sasha with the words, I hate Jews, texted to Sasha by her roommate. Right. Like why? So she was upset. She felt like the roommate did this just to see how she would react. And they were both on the rowing team at Temple University. So she took it to her coach. She thought, okay, here's a trusted person who knows both of us and who can maybe help me mediate this situation. Unfortunately, the coach didn't really respond and didn't treat it like it was a very big deal. So Sasha ended up moving out of the dorm, filing a complaint with campus police, and she stopped attending rowing practice. It didn't say she dropped off the team in the article, but she stopped going to practice. To make things worse, the school arranged a hearing, probably when she made the complaint to the police office, and she got a letter the day before the hearing saying that her roommate was allowed to bring a parent, one of her friends, her boyfriend, and one of her coaches. And Sasha wasn't allowed to bring anyone with her. She picked up the phone and asked them, can I bring someone? And they said, no, the approved people to be at the hearing are are on the paper that we sent. So I guess the roommate apologized in the hearing and said it was a joke, but of course... Sasha wasn't convinced and didn't really accept her apology. And now her plan is to switch schools at the end of the year. I brought the story, like I said, I think it shows like the layers of issues, right? The coach didn't respond. Then she's treated unfairly after the case was presented by not being able to bring anyone to support her. And in the end, the article says that this girl is still on the team. There wasn't really disciplinary action. She just made an apology and and they sort of checked a box and thought that that was enough. What's crazy about that story is that it just seems so, yes, there were warning signs that her roommate was, I guess, harassing her a little bit for her Jewish identity. But that picture with the I hate Jews, that kind of aggressive, passive aggressive thing like that seem, seems kind of unprovoked. I mean, I wonder, who knows? It's possible that there are some details sure. that were left out of the, the news article in the forward that you know maybe we don't have the full picture. But still, I feel like we, we spend so much time during our time at HUC, which I'm so glad that this is part of how we've been trained as almost clergy. 
but we spend so much time really learning about the history and etymology of anti-Semitism. And we know that it goes all the way back to biblical times. And we see yeah. it evolve throughout Europe, in Italy, in Rhineland, right? We, we, we see how, how the ghettos in Italy evolved, how, how Rhineland, medieval Rhineland then, then made their own version of that. Um, we, we learned that in order to kind of assimilate, Jews were asked to be the merchants for Christians. And that's where so much of this trope of Jews have all the money evolved, just because Jews had to become good business people to assimilate in, in Europe. So they didn't face pogroms and, and, and such. And I mean, that could be, a, this, this could be a whole other, a whole other yeah. episode on, on the, the biblical. And then I think this medieval history of anti-Semitism is particularly interesting. But so much of the dialogue and, and the discourse about anti-Semitism today is done on social media with infographics and you know Instagram stories and, and, and little tidbits that don't really present the whole story of the how and the why. We're still facing issues with anti-Semitism and hatred towards Jews today. This isn't something that just started with the Holocaust. This Certainly. goes back thousands and thousands of years. And the fact is that so much of this conversation is happening on social media amongst people who may not know all of that, all of that history. And so something that I, I really think about a lot now being in the role of educating and teaching and, and mentoring these Jewish college students is what can we as clergy do? I, I mean, not just college students, really. This is for all con congregants, whether yeah. you're working at a congregation, whether you're working at Hilla like me, whether you're doing um, other kinds of, of pastoral work, where, wherever. How can we as clergy help be both a pastoral and educational presence for people who may have encountered anti-Semitism in their lives? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a really great example of that education going on in Utah right now. I don't know if you saw the founder of this tech company, Entrada, sent an email to a bunch of CEOs and political leaders claiming that the COVID-19 vaccine is some plot by the Jews to exterminate people. He ended up um, basically being pushed out the second day, but then the executive team reached out to a community rabbi. His name is uh, Rabbi Sam Spector and asked Sam to come in and educate their team on anti-Semitism. You know, it's problematic. It's in, it's not just in colleges, right? Today we're talking mostly about colleges, but this is a tech company. But what Sam did is he he took the opportunity and he went and he taught them about the historical and modern representations of anti-Semitism. And now they want him to teach the entire company. Like that was just the executive team. And they're like, great, we want to bring you in to teach every single one of our employees because we don't want this to be a part of our company culture or our community culture or like the culture of the state of Utah. So, you know, something really horrible happened, but also I... I appreciate that story because I think something something good came out of it, the education that those people are going to get now. Absolutely. And, and I think also, yes, 
this is happening with adults, companies in the working world. And also to take it back to the college campus, I see my work around anti-Semitism, Holocaust education on a college campus as a really unique opportunity because we're catching students at a time in their lives where there's it's they're the most open-minded the most social and they're going through such a period of, of rapid emotional development as well and it's a time to really make an impact and make an impression on them where they're open to learning and open to understanding and that can't be said all the time for adults i mean you know sure <laughs> postgraduate adults yeah who are more ingrained in older ways of thinking, perhaps. Well, and the truth is, I mean, most college students are under the age of, I think it's 24 is when our frontal cortex finally finishes developing, right? So most of the students you're working with are, are still in those final stages of their brain developing. And I think that, I, I'm not a neurologist, um, but I think that might have something to do with why they're more open to, to taking in new information. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think part, another part of the reason this is such an important time for them is that, yes, in, I mean, in my community in which I work, we did have the largest anti-Semitic attack in America, here in Pittsburgh, just down the street from where I live, and down the street yeah. from where I work. And yet, there is so much anti-Semitism, hatred towards Jews that can be so subtle. And it's so interesting. I had a student come to me. This is a student who was enrolled in my Jewish Learning Fellowship class. It's been studying Torah with me all of last semester. When we came back from the Thanksgiving break, she wanted to make a meeting with me. Great, I didn't know what it was about. We, we had our meeting and, and it immediately became clear to me that this was a pastoral, pastoral context. And she said to me, you know, I was at home talking with some of my friends from high school who are now on other college campuses. And I thought about our fight song for Pitt. The motto is hail to Pitt, which is the same is true for the University of Michigan. Sure. Hail to the victors is the University of Michigan. Hail to Pitt is, is what we say at the University of Pittsburgh. And it was so big this year. Our football team is the best they've been since the 80s. They made it to the Peach Bowl. So these students are going to the football games every week and they're cheering, hail to Pitt, hail to Pitt. And she came to me and she said, this is something everyone does and no one talks about it. But the fact that we're saying hail to something reminds me of Heil Hitler. And even for me, I said to her in that moment, I said, this is such an incredible observation you made. This is an example of how anti-Semitism can sometimes even be so veiled and so ingrained in our cultural history of non-Jewish things, of ways that we've just assimilated as Jews, right? There's a large Jewish population at the University of Michigan. They have, I believe, 5,000 Jews, one of the largest sure. in America. Um, here at Pitt, we have over 2,000 Jewish students. But this is just a totally secular sporting phrase that emerged at some point in the University of Pittsburgh history. Probably not, I'm assuming the best here, hopefully not from an, a place of anti-Semitism, just to offer some kind of rallying cry for the sports teams. And yet, even that subtle reference, this student came to me saying, now I'm 
because I realized that connection, now I'm going to feel really uncomfortable at sporting events. But I also wow. want to do what all of my friends are doing. I want to be part of socially what college should be, right? Which a big part of that at Pitt is going to the football games. And so we got into this really great discussion. I, I helped guide her, her thinking through this. And she's a writer. She loves to write. And so she decided that she's going to write an, an article, which she may submit to the, to the student newspaper about this, which is wonderful. And also, stuff like this doesn't change overnight. It takes a lot of conversation and a lot of dialogue. And I said to her, you know, that's the first step, is putting your thoughts on the page and having the conversations with other Jewish and non-Jewish students about this. What are some subtle ways that we might not even realize we're hurting students who are valuable to our community? Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's not great that she went through that experience, but... But that you helped her find a, a process. Yeah, I'm really interested if she publishes the article. I would love for you to share it with me. I'd be really curious to, to read what she writes. But even if she doesn't publish the article just to have that outlet to process her experience, hopefully it was helpful. I've been thinking about my own experiences. I don't know. Did you experience anti-Semitism or witness anti-Semitism as an undergraduate student? For us, this is like 10 plus years ago. Yeah, I'm just curious if you had any. Yeah, I went to the University of Rochester in upstate western New York, and we jokingly called it Jew of R. There were so <laughs> many Jewish students. All of my close friends were Jewish. I remember I would occasionally go to Shabbat dinners and, and things with some friends, although I wasn't I wasn't particularly connected to my personal Judaism at that stage. Sure. Focused on, on other things. But I knew that I was naturally drawn to other students who were Jewish, who maybe had a similar background and upbringing to my own. And I don't remember facing any kind of overt anti-Semitism, but I do have memories of the couple years after undergrad where I was at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign doing some graduate work in music education. And what's fascinating to me is the world of classical music in terms of how it's taught at music conservatories is very Christian-based. Just from a history of Western classical music point of view, you start in your first music history class in a, in a traditional music conservatory, and you start by talking about the Catholic Mass. Hmm. And learn how music evolved. Really, you look through Western classical music, through Monteverdi, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, well, Mozart comes before Beethoven. All of them wrote these, these masses. Many parts of them, you can trace back both the text and aspects of the musical chant to the original Catholic medieval mass. And so really what has evolved in so many schools of music is this, well, everything is about, you know, the Christmas music is the best. You're singing Handel's Messiah. At Easter, you are well, also singing, singing Handel's Messiah and Vivaldi Gloria. And, and so much of the classical music world is centered still today, very church centric. And there isn't really any education around Jewish music or Jewish modes, which has an equally rich history and is not at all covered in Western classical music history courses. I will say that there was a time in my mid-20s when I was at the University of Illinois, I was in this music school environment, 
And I did have a teacher say, I tried to say, you know, it's Yom Kippur. I'm not going to be able to be in class this particular day. And the teacher did say to me, if you're not here, your attendance grade will go down. And there were a couple years in there where I didn't go to high holiday services through my mid-20s because to me, at that point in my life, doing what I needed to do to pursue a career in classical music was most important to me. And I think I didn't even realize at the time that it was anti-Semitic or it didn't register as important enough to me because that wasn't my priority at the time. But this is now a topic that, that I'm... Fortunately, in a role, in both a stage and a role in my life to to be able to do something about it. I've been in conversations with the School of Music at Carnegie Mellon about possibly teaching some guest sessions on history of Jewish music. I am coaching and, and advising a group of students at Carnegie Mellon who wanted to form a klezmer band and really learn on their own about Jewish music. And they're, they're preparing a show for the spring that's really going to merge Jews and musical theater and klezmer music. And it's, that's totally, that's exactly what my cantorial thesis is about. So it's like totally perfect. So look, I haven't experienced any kind of hate in a more overt way, but I think that these subtle experiences are equally as important. And I think now in my work, part of the pastoral care through anti-Semitism education is when a student comes to you and they're like, this made me really uncomfortable and they describe a situation, but it may not be what would cross the line as like the tree of life shooting. You know, there was an instance at, I believe it was either GW University or Northeastern University this past fall where their, uh, their mezuzah was ripped off the door of the Hillel building. Mm. And there was, I think, I, that, I, I believe, actually, I believe that was at Northeastern and at GW, it was, I think, a chapter of ZBT or one of the Jewish fraternities. They had a Torah in their house and someone broke in and defamed it to some on Cedarim and, and other things. So it's important to educate that anti-Semitism isn't just these very, very obviously overt things, but it can also be a comment in passing. It can also be lack of allowance for religious observance or consequences for religious observance like I experienced. It's that that anti-Semitism is really the full spectrum of that. Yeah, absolutely. It has me thinking about my own experiences, which really are throughout my life. They're not limited to um, college. When I was in elementary school, there's a girl who bullied me. And I remember on the bus one day, she said she was going to draw on my face and connect my freckles and see if they made a star, David. I hate elementary school. And like that, I don't think I understood that that was anti-Semitic until really reflecting in the last year. It was just like part of the bullying experience that I had with this girl that was much more than that one incident. But like that particular incident was anti-Semitic. And you talking about like not being able to go to services. I, you know, I grew up in Indiana, Northern Indiana. I went to a pretty small school system and we were one of two Jewish families in the school system. And we used to have to get uh, a letter written and signed by our rabbi to have excused absences for the high holidays. (laughs) Our rabbi thought that this was the most ridiculous rule. 
And he said, I don't care what you do on the holidays. I will write a letter and say that you came here. If you want to go hiking and not come to services, you should do that. If you want to stay home and sleep all day, you should do that. He said, the school cannot determine what you as a Jewish person choose to do with the holiest day of your year. And so every year he would have to write us letters. And that was elementary through high school. I was in the same school system and we went through it year after year after year. I don't know if they ever learned or not. It still happens, right? Yeah. Like this year, the high holidays were so early. <laughs> I think all of us were like, oh, how, how is this? <laughs> Everything felt too early this year, 5782. And Rosh Hashanah was, I believe, a week after the students got to campus in their yeah. first week or two of classes. And what I said to them, there were a lot of students who were like, I want to come. But I don't feel like I can miss the first week or two of this class. They, yeah. they were scared to even say something to their professor about it. And, and I think it's so subconscious, right? Like, it's just like, because they think, we all think, oh, I just want to do, you know, what I need to do to do well in my career. And if that means I need to go to class so I don't miss the notes. For a lot of these students who are in the nursing program, who are sure. in engineering, who are pre-med, who are in pharmacy, it's, these are really intense science classes where if you miss one class, you miss important stuff for exams. And so many of them came to me saying, I feel so conflicted because I want to be there. And I also know that to take the day off from class to come to services and really observe the way I would want to, that it's really going to set me back. And so a lot of students, some students who are maybe more conservative, maybe more observant growing up, come to college, you know, if they went to many of them, I have a lot of students who went to Jewish day schools. They grew up just having the days off anyway, because they went to Jewish day school. Yeah. <laughs> come to a public university like Pitt and suddenly they're confronted with how am I going to be Jewish the way that I want to be Jewish? and also get ahead professionally in my education and, and career the way I want to in this secular world, which expects me to do work on the Chagim, expects me to do work on Shabbat. And mm. what does that mean for me and my religious observance? And what kind of sacrifices am I willing to make or not willing to make? And do I need to pay a price in being discriminated for my religious choices? Does my future career need to feel threatened because I want to observe Shabbat, because I want to observe Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur? You and I both know it shouldn't, but I'm very surprised by some of the things that some students have reported to me, similar to my own experience that I explained earlier. Even though we do give them letters that they can present to professors as a letter of excuse, but there still is very much such an internalized stigma for these students of feeling like they need to choose their Judaism or their career at this stage in their life, which is really challenging. It's interesting. I don't think I had ever thought about the way that like being raised in rural Indiana prepared me for life in the world that is outside of the Jewish community. I didn't have the luxury of like even having a Jewish day school where I grew up. I, I would say probably the closest Jewish day school was in Chicago, which we were only an hour from, but you don't drive an hour to take your kids to, you know, elementary, middle or high school. But that's just really interesting that I never considered like the impact that a student who had been sort of 
insulated by the Jewish world their whole life, how they would have to come onto a campus and learn how to ask for things that they've never had to ask for that have always just been presented to them as, as a part of their world. My brother went to Ball State his first year of college. He had this Israeli flag that he hung on the wall in his dorm room. And the next day after he hung it, he came back from class and his roommate had hung a Nazi flag on the opposing wall. And he went and made a complaint and they made the kid take it down. But by that point, he was like, I'm not living in the same room. You know, whether the kid did it just to make him mad or not, like the fact that he owned a Nazi flag is concerning. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. That story has just been in the back of my head today. It's definitely a more overt example of anti-Semitism than covert, but we know that that both exist. Um, I didn't really deal with it in undergrad either. I went to the University of Indianapolis. It's a diverse school. They have students from students and professors from like over 50 countries, which does not happen everywhere. And they really celebrate the diversity, but also it's a Methodist school. It was started as a Methodist school and there's still a Methodist church on the campus and there's still undertones of Christianity in a lot of the culture, not necessarily in a bad way, but a lot of universities in this country are religiously founded. So after I graduated, I want to say two years after when I was still in the community and just starting to work and volunteer in the Jewish community, there was a Students for Justice in Palestine group that started on our campus and they ran a huge BDS campaign, boycott, divestment, sanction, trying to get people to cut financial ties to Israel. And I don't agree with BDS. I don't think it works the way they want it to work in Israel. I don't want to dive too deep into BDS. It's a whole nother subject. But my problem wasn't necessarily that this group existed on the campus. Everybody has a right to their voice, but their BDS campaigns were causing anti-Semitism. So there was a swastika carved into a statue on campus a couple other incidents that I don't remember the exact details of. And then when they wanted to bring it to a vote with the student Senate to try and get the student Senate to vote on a BDS rule for the whole campus, the Jewish community got together and said, we'll be there for this conversation. And then they announced the date of the conversation and it was on a Saturday morning. And the Jewish Community Relations Council in Indianapolis tried to work with them and said, it's really unfair for you to have this meeting during Shabbat, the Jewish community would like to be there to share our voice and share our opinion. But you have, at the time, there was an Orthodox Jewish student on the campus who was a master's student. And she was being asked, if you want to stand up for yourself, you have to break Shabbat to do that. Which is like, it just shows that the school didn't understand the depth of the issue either. A lot of people still showed up, you know, there were a lot me and a lot of other reformed Jews who are not as halakhically observant showed up to the meeting and and spoke for the Jewish community but there was still a lot of anger around having to be there on the sabbath and and the lack of understanding that the school had even when we explained it very clearly i think what's what's interesting about about bds and this is an episode about 
anti-Semitism and not necessarily about Israel. But I do want to raise up the issue between BDS and anti-Semitism in that they're often conflated. And there's a really, really great Instagram account that actually was started by college students. It's called Jewish on Campus on Instagram at Jewish on Campus. And they take submissions from college students of different anti-Semitic things that students have experienced on college campuses around the country. It's really pretty awful, some of the things that students have experienced. But I remembered seeing in the news, and they made a post about it in December, the City University of New York Law School student government passed a BDS resolution that called to cut all ties with Jewish organizations that are affiliated with the university or its students, such as Hillel. And by assuming a particular view of Israel, that should mean that that no Jewish students can practice their religion. This idea that a religion is not the same as feelings, political ideology around a country. The fact that those two things are being conflated is really short-sighted and really not telling the whole story. And that by this BDS resolution calling for the university to cut all ties with sorry, the New York Law School, which is part of the City University of New York, um, by calling for them to cut all ties with Hillel, that is basically saying to Jewish students, we don't think that you should be able to practice your religion or have a cultural home on campus because we are assuming that you have particular views about a particular geopolitical situation. And I think it's really important that there's a lot more education that should happen to show people that those two things are very separate and should not be should not be conflated because as you and I both know, there is a large, very large spectrum also of <laughs> people's beliefs about the geopolitics in Israel. I really do feel strongly that there, yes, is some overlap, but it's not safe to assume that all Jews feel a certain way about Israel and then to discriminate against Jews for practicing their religion because of presumed beliefs about Israel. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the beliefs about Israel and the Jewish community are so so widely varied and I think they're being pushed further to the right and further to the left every day so the gap of where you can lie on the spectrum of Israel beliefs is is growing right it's not shrinking it's growing and yeah like you said not all anti-Israel or anti-Zionism behavior is classified as anti-Semitic but there is a lot of overlap. It actually made me want to read one of the quotes that's on the text sheet that I gave you from the first article, the Jewish Chronicle article, local college students face varying degrees of anti-Semitism on campus. So it's the top right corner. It says Sadie Hill, a student of Grove City College, stated that her campus is, quote, very pro-Israel. However, she did face an anti-Semitic experience after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Hill reported that she tried to explain to another student how neo-Nazis were among those rioting in D.C. The conversation quickly spiraled, and during a subsequent meditation with the chaplain, the student called Hilf a kike. 
I mean, so because she mentioned that neo-Nazis were a part of the riots, they used the worst slur to refer to her during a meditation with the chaplain. I can't imagine being the chaplain in that situation. Likely that chaplain was non-Jewish. I mean, I don't know for sure, but this is a, a small school. Like I looked it up. It's about an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh. We do not serve that particular college for what it's worth. My hill, all yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I figured it was too far away for you guys to be serving that school. But, um, you know, that story just shows that it can devolve from just a statement. It's such a, a difficult thing to hear. In this particular article that you shared, Delilah Hollander, and later on in, in the other article, these other students who are quoted are student leaders in our Hillel, who I have pretty close relationships with. And these students have faced some challenges in their experiences. Yeah. The ADL Hillel Campus Anti-Semitism Survey that they put out last year, I shared a, a graph. It's a little difficult to read because it's a picture of it. But they chose five categories and they asked students, have others assumed you hold particular views on Israel or Israeli policy because you're Jewish? 24% of students said yes to that. Have you felt the need to hide your Jewish identity from others on campus? Like choosing not to mention that you're Jewish or not wearing Jewish jewelry or apparel. 15% of students said yes to that. Have you been blamed for the actions of the Israeli government because you're Jewish? 12% of students said yes to that. Have you felt unwelcome in a campus organization because of actual or perceived support of Israel as a Jew? 10% said yes to that. Have you felt unwelcome in a campus organization because you're Jewish? I'm surprised only 6% said yes to that. I think that's actually, I've heard a lot of stories about students feeling unwelcome in campus organizations because they're Jewish. Organizations that, uh, especially that are politically motivated for a, a different political issue. Um, if you support Israel, you're suddenly like shunned from that conversation, even if the conversation's not about Israel. Another story that I wanted to lift up, and then maybe we'll jump to our conversation more specifically about Pittsburgh, but a quote from that ADL survey, a student at a large Northeastern university said that expressing support for the Jewish community or Israel is immediately met with ostracizing and harassment to the point of not being able to talk about it in class. That scares me maybe more than anything that students don't feel like they can be themselves in class. It's horrible for them to have a bad experience outside of class too, but like you're literally there for the education. And if you feel like you can't share your voice or your opinions in class because of your Jewish identity, then you're not getting the education that you deserve or the education that you're paying for. Uh, and the way that, that it's seeped into the classroom is one of the things that scares me the most and, and makes me want to shift my education goals. You know, we'll see what job I land in, but I would love to create a program that's designed for college administrators and professors to learn about anti-Semitism historically and currently, because a lot of times these teachers are just as uneducated on the issue as the 
students who are perpetrating these acts. And if we want teachers and administrators to be able to support our Jewish students, they have to have the knowledge to do it. And I, I don't think it's there for a lot of people right now. Something I've also thought about a lot is that we've seen in, in the last two years with Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, a huge move on college campuses towards establishing really strong diversity, equity, and inclusion programming and staff. And yet, Jews are not included in that, typically, at least in, in, in my experience where I currently work and what I've seen on other campuses. Because unless you're a Jew of color, many Ashkenazi normative Jews pass as white. And yes, that comes with privilege. Passing is what, of course, comes with privilege. And yet, for an Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion to not acknowledge that anti-Semitism, even in these more covert ways we've been discussing, whether you know a student's not comfortable speaking in class, they're not comfortable wearing uh, Maga and David or their yarmulke, for that to not be addressed by an Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, it's an oversight. And well, it's either an oversight or possibly, that's ironically, anti-Semitic in and of itself. Yeah. At one of our colleges, one of our smaller schools, the student, the Jewish students wanted to organize on their own. And in, in addition to receiving support from Hillel, they also wanted to have an on-campus faculty or staff mentor. And the person who was part of, I, I can't remember if it was the student activities or the DEI office, said, the director of the Holocaust Museum is going to be your advisor. And I had a meeting with this particular staff person because the students were very upset about it and said, for our Jewishness to be reduced to the Holocaust feels a little short-sighted. Maybe it didn't come from an anti-Semitic place, and we actually did have a very good conversation about it. It was more from a place of lack of education. But this non-Jewish staff person thought, we have a Center for Holocaust Education on our campus. Perhaps they would have the most resources to be able to help our students without thinking of how that looked and sounded to the student leaders who felt that their Jewishness was essentially being reduced to Jewish equals Holocaust. Yeah, a lot of education needs to happen. Okay, I, I really appreciate the stories that you've shared so far. I want to shift us in our last little bit of time here. So we're going to talk now about our own experiences and about the experiences of our communities in the aftermath of the Tree of Life attack that happened in October of 2018. So if you don't know about this story, I, I think most listeners probably do, but just to give a quick overview, a gunman entered the synagogue and murdered 11 people in the Tree of Life synagogue and really terrorized the whole Jewish community. I think the greatest impact was obviously on the community who lost family members and community members, but it reverberated out and it affected the Jewish community in the whole country and frankly, probably the world. It was the largest anti-Semitic attack in American history. And the only, well, at the time, it had been the only synagogue shooting. There had been other types of attacks on synagogues, but never an active shooter. And sadly, a few months later, we 
experienced the second active shooter in a synagogue in Chabad of Poway, California. We're going to talk more about Pittsburgh today, but it started, or not started, but I would say the, the anti-Semitism increased after this attack. It emboldened other anti-Semites and white supremacists to do horrible things. The 2019 ADL audit of anti-Semitic incidents found that the total number of incidents in 2019 increased 12% from the previous year, right? So late 2018, this attack happens. And then in 2019, anti-Semitic incidents rise 12% and even more disturbing, 56% increase in assaults. The audit found that there were on average as many as six anti-Semitic incidents in the United States for every day in the calendar year of 2019, the highest level of anti-Semitic activity ever recorded by the ADL. And I read the number has slowly dropped since 2019, thank God, but they're still a lot higher than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So there's a lot of trauma in our community from this attack. I think still today we're feeling the trauma, but before we get into talking about your community work, I'd love for us to talk a little bit about our own experiences when this attack happened. You were a second year cantorial student, just arrived on the New York campus. I was a second year rabbinical student, just arrived on the Cincinnati campus. So I'll invite you to share first what it was like for you in the days and weeks after the attack. Sure. So I was working at the time as the cantorial intern at Temple Bethel in Jersey City. New Jersey, just across the river from Manhattan. And I remember I got home from leading Shabbat morning services and I got the alert on my phone and I saw what had happened and I was just totally gutted. I remember not really feeling sure what to think or feel immediately. This, this just kind of shock. I remember what brought me the most solace was just playing a little bit of my, of my guitar and singing some OZ, Vizim Ratia, and, and, and other songs of peace, protest, and strength. But in the months that followed, I suddenly had this harsh realization that I think many of us who, maybe you share a similar sentiment, many of us who came into this work, came into Cantorial Rabbinical School, thinking our role would be one thing, <laughs> a certain way, and then suddenly clergy are now not only Balei Tefillah, not only teachers of Torah, not only pastoral counselors, but we are security guards. We are kind of the first line of defense when you're up there leading a service on the Bima and you're the only person who can see the door. And that's a terrifying realization to have that I had, that I think many of our colleagues had. And I worked in this synagogue in an area that was not such a great area, not totally safe. It had been a Jewish community when the synagogue was founded over a hundred years prior, but the community had, had since been overturned. And there were regularly homeless people hanging out outside and around our building. I remember we immediately shifted to having a police presence outside of our building at all times services and religious school were happening. And there were a couple times that I was leading services and whether it was by another congregant unknowingly or they somehow got in, there were people who seemed unsafe who managed to get into the building. 
I had a large bag thrown at me once by someone who broke into the building. I had left the door open for the pianist who was told would be arriving in a couple minutes. And I thought it was him who walked in and I was face to face with a man who clearly had some problems, some issues going on, started yelling and screaming things at me and threw a large, heavy bag filled with probably a lot of books or something at me. And fortunately, right when that happened, the police pulled up for their regular duty outside the synagogue and the police officer handled the situation from there. But it was really terrifying. And to this day, every synagogue and Jewish organization I've worked at, my first question is, what is the security here? I remember when I started working at, at Hillel, being here in Pittsburgh, on one of our first staff training days, we had an active shooter training, which is on one hand, very triggering for those of us who have been in these clergy roles, lived through these anti-Semitic events on synagogues while working at synagogues. And yet it's, it's essential that as clergy now, we know how every single alarm, every single lock, every single in case of emergency button, phone number, that we are like security guards, even though we have a paid security guard at Hillel, should someone come in who's unassuming, we need to address that. I received a suspicious email just this year. I got home from leading Erev Rosh Hashanah services. It was a hug, but I checked my email. I had a very suspicious and somewhat threatening email, and I spent the morning before services on Rosh Hashanah, instead of preparing to lead services, I spent the morning on the phone with the director of security for the Jewish Federation of Pittsburgh. She briefed me, thankfully, it was someone who was known, uh, a known figure in the community who had some a history of some suspicious behavior and activity. And she briefed me on the situation and this particular individual. And I clued in our security guard at the building as well. And, and there was no issue. He never showed up at the building. It, it was fine. But still, this is, it, it immediately shifted that this is a reality as clergy that we have to deal with that before 2018 may not, I don't think it was as prevalent in this way. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was a conversation like around the high holidays and at really large synagogues, but it was not, it was not a big part of the narrative before this attack. I had a, a similar experience, I think, in some ways. I was working a monthly pulpit in Northern Michigan at the time. The Saturday that it happened, I was not working that weekend, but I was also teaching locally in Cincinnati religious school. So when I wasn't in Michigan, I was Sunday mornings in this religious school here locally. And, you know, we all received an email from the rabbi saying, this is how we're going to approach the day. We did not cancel school. We were, it was really wild. We were actually, instead of at the synagogue, we held class that day at the Jewish day school and they had uh, anti-bullying training scheduled for the whole religious school that day. And like, I don't even think I connected it at the time, but just this idea that the day after our community was attacked, we then shifted to teach our kids how to not be bullies. One of the families in the school really didn't want us to speak about it. They wanted to be able to have that conversation on their own with their child in a more controlled environment. And, you know, we agreed to that, that we wouldn't speak about it as the full school. But I was the teacher of the kids who had already been through their B'nai Mitzvot. So they were like high schoolers. I think I had one eighth grade student. Everybody else was freshmen and sophomores in high school. 
And I knew they were going to have to go to school the next day and talk to their friends about it. Like people were going to ask them questions if they know they're Jewish. And so I scrapped my entire lesson that I had planned for them. And we just had a conversation about what happened and how they were feeling. And some of my students, their parents hadn't told them yet. And I was really, frankly, I was kind of surprised that you wouldn't have told your teenagers right away. But then I thought, you know, our parents aren't necessarily prepared to have these conversations with their kids. They, they lean on us a lot to help them and their kids understand how to process these situations. So, so I helped my teens process. And then the following weekend, I was in Northern Michigan and my community in Northern Michigan, they were, are small, but mighty. Um, and they didn't wait for me to start. At, I think the day after the shooting, they had a community wide, like an interfaith vigil. And then the following Shabbat, they invited their faith partners to join our service. And I looked back at my sermon and now I could do so much better than I did then, but I was a second year student. So I'll give myself, um, you know, a little bit of leeway for, for all that I've learned since then, but I did my best to shape sort of a, a healing service. And the service was helpful in that moment to provide a little bit of healing, but we went through the same security process the next several months. Most of our conversations were about security. The board was asking what is HUC doing and what are other synagogues in the pulpit system doing and what is the Union for Reform Judaism saying? They formed a new committee and they already had some security, but they added more. But the the fear was real. And this idea that I was both supposed to be up there like singing and reading and leading prayer and delivering a sermon And at the same time, constantly watching for everyone's safety, including my own, is exhausting. It's exhausting and it's nerve wracking. And like, like you said, this is not what we thought we signed up to do, but I think we're all learning or we've learned a lot. Uh, (laughs) We've learned a lot of things in our time in cantoral and rabbinical school that we never thought we would learn. We learned about synagogue importance of synagogue security and how to lead services on zoom two things that that i I never thought i would be doing when i came into cantorial school but but here we are yeah it's so wild to think about really we were having all those security conversations and still up until the pandemic hit and then the pandemic hit and it was like oh well we're all locked in our houses so it hasn't been so much of a conversation in the last two years but I imagine as we as we move back to you know Hashem, God willing as we move back to a life in person together those committees still exist those policies still exist and as technology improves I'm sure our security will improve as well I would love to hear the the last little part before we finish up. So you are working at Hillel in Pittsburgh. You serve multiple different schools. You have students who this year were 
seniors, but were freshmen when the attack happened. And you had the opportunity to organize memorial programming around the attack. I'd love to hear what you did, how your students responded, what kind of impact it had on them, on you. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. I, first of all, I I'd want to correct two things that I think mm. in the media and even, even in our clergy communities that are, that are sometimes misquoted, this is not something I knew before I moved to Pittsburgh, okay. but when talking about the events of October 27th, 2018, it's not in, in Pittsburgh, we don't refer to it as the tree of life shooting because there were actually several congregations who were in the building that morning who rented space from the Tree of Life congregation. There was also Dor Hadash and New Light congregation, um, both different kind of different different denominations of, of Judaism, sure. instructionist and, and a different conservative congregation. So we're very careful in Pittsburgh to refer to it not as the Tree of Life shooting, but the shooting at the Tree of Life on October 27th, 2018. Um, Thank you. To denote that the shooting was at this building, but that it encompassed members of other Jewish communities and congregations as well. In terms of how we dealt with it on campus, we had several days actually leading up to the Gregorian anniversary of the date where we met students on campus as a staff. I also have a robust Jewish student life engagement staff team as well, which is really, really wonderful. One of my colleagues is a social worker as well and, and is also equipped in pastoral encounters. So we had several days where we met students on campus and we asked them where they're seeing hope today, how they're feeling. Many of them, either for the seniors, was very close to home. It's still very raw. They remember where they were on that day. They remember being locked down in a building on campus or a shop or wherever they were for hours and hours and hours. They remember hearing sirens going on throughout the city for hours on end. They remember being on the phone with their parents, being really scared. And then we have freshmen, many of whom were maybe a little bit too young, three years prior. If they're coming to college, they're 18. They're like 15, 16 years old when it happened probably the age of the students that you were teaching. Yeah. And some, like you said, some of them didn't even know until you educated and kind of shared with them in that pastoral educational capacity. And many of them live out of state or they're from Philly and Pittsburgh, <laughs> even though we're in, all in Pennsylvania, we do, I do have a lot of students who are from the Philadelphia area. It's a very different, it feels like a different planet almost. <laughs> Pennsylvania is a pretty big state. So it was difficult for students who were not in Pittsburgh and were like almost like just barely too young of an age to really fully grasp it when it happened. I do think it was harder for them to connect. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in coming years as the student body really has turned over how we're going to choose to commemorate this day for which none of the current students were present. Yeah. This past year was the third yard site. I offered, as I speak about in the article, which you so beautifully quoted in your text sheet, 
I led and facilitated with a couple other student leaders an opportunity for a healing Havdalah service, an opportunity for students to say Hadish Yatom, Misha Berach for those who are still healing from the emotional trauma of the experience, which honestly, that is most of the Pittsburgh Jewish community. This experience is still very, very real, very present. I don't know any Jewish Pittsburgher who cannot tell you where, when, how they felt on that day, on October 27th, 2018. So it's a lot. It's a lot. I drive by and I walk by the Tree of Life Synagogue all the time. It's it's my neighborhood. It's my community. It's in Squirrel Hill. My fiance's office is literally less than a block away. And I walk by there a lot. You can walk up to the... It's The whole building is closed. They actually just received this whole... Like millions of dollars uh, of donations and a grant from the state to redo the building and this whole whole thing. The Tree of Life Synagogue and Dor Hadash and New Light, I believe, have been renting space at another large reform synagogue in Pittsburgh called Road of Shalom since the shooting. So they've all been wow. renting space there for the last several years. But they would like to go back to their space, but they're not going to go back to it the way it was. Fortunately, the shooting was not in the actual main sanctuary. The shooter actually went into the kind of social hall multi-purpose areas, which is where the other minyanim from those other congregations were meeting. So it sounds like they have plans to keep preserve the sanctuary since that's not where the actual shooting took place and to demolish or totally redo that other part of the building. It's a separate wing. So fortunately, they're, they're able to do that. But today, when you go by the Tree of Life Synagogue, you can walk up. They have it locked, but kind of like an open, directed fence. So you can walk up to the doors to enter the building. And they have, in memoriam still, they have all of the signs that were placed outside of the synagogue in the weeks immediately following the shooting in 2018 and, and other memorabilia as well. So you can go to pay your respects if you come to Pittsburgh. And still on, on 1027 every year, you know, people are still putting flowers outside the synagogue. There's also an organization that came out of this that is doing incredible work called the 1027 Healing Partnership. It's an organization that was founded in partnership with the JCC. Their offices are inside the JCC here in Pittsburgh. And it's a staff of psychologists, social workers, who free of charge offer therapy and other healing services to the community in Pittsburgh, whether you're Jewish or not. If you've been in any way affected by the shooting, it's an organization that offers really meaningful programming and services. And every year, that organization is the, the group that plans the Yertzeit, the, usually they do it on the Gregorian date, on 1027, the commemoration. And they also usually have a couple weeks of learning in honor of the victims who were sadly killed that day. So it's still very present here. And, and I hope that as a larger Jewish community, a national and international Jewish community, that it doesn't fade into the distance, that we can continue to remember that this happened and that we still need to be vigilant. We need to remain vigilant in protecting our communities today and in standing up against hate and standing up against anti-Semitism. Yeah, honestly, you wrapped it up so perfectly. These families and this community in Pittsburgh needs and deserves our continued love and support. 
even if we're not directly there with them. So again, I, I'll just say thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I really appreciate you sharing your personal stories, some stories from what your students have experienced. I can't imagine a, a better partner for this conversation. So thank you so much, Stephanie. Absolutely. Thank you, Maddie. Such a pleasure to be here and honor that you invited me and thanks for having me. This episode of Sihot Kashot was recorded, produced, and sound engineered by me, Maddie Anderson. I want to thank my thesis advisor, Dean of HUC's historic Cincinnati campus, Rabbi Jonathan Hecht, for putting up with me through my creative process and offering your support along the way. And of course, to Stephanie Green for joining me in this difficult conversation. Lahitra. Mm-hmm.